see that streamer, we're just in time. We have stumbled into a major crime. They got the girl off right. Now that's not nice. I think she is the subject of a sacrifice. Buddy, we're putting this party on ice. But first you know we really ought to read them their rights. Read them their rights. Read them their rights. Well, I'm here tonight to rap about to write. Cause right now you're in trouble. Don't have to say nothing at all. Y'all got two calls and you better make them on the double. They go back to where this happened at, at 5.45 in the morning and everything's gone. And the pagans have cleaned everything up as if nothing was ever there. They've drained the pool. They've got rid of all the signage. They've cleared up all the ground for what would have contained, no doubt, a, 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 you know, a lot of litter from people kind of being there. And it looks like no one was ever there. Um, and this is where the police commissioner, uh, Jane Kirkpatrick, who we'd only seen on a TV previously, now shows up in person. And she is kind of annoyed at Friday for like trying to investigate this or something i don't know if her motivations seem a bit, obviously we know she's in on it later on but it seems weird that she kind of immediately dismisses it um you know and and like you say like the, the reaction from harry morgan is kind of odd in that it does feel a little bit like why is he dismissing these two cops who he sent on this undercover assignment um, and now they're telling him what happened on this undercover assignment and he doesn't he refuses to believe them uh, you know and like just the fact that like like when because when the commissioner says to them you know what are you dressed like and then friday says well you know we were sanctioned to you know dress in this type of clothing because we were on an undercover undercover um stakeout or whatever it's like why the commissioner would know this why like it's just there are some kind of puzzling elements here um in terms of this and you know this is where the commissioner takes them off the pagan case they are no longer investigating it um but we do have one loose end, which, of course, is the Virgin Connie Swale, um, who is looking through mug books, trying to find the person that she saw, uh, you know, who was the high priest. Um, and at the same time, Friday is reading, um, I don't know if it's like a book or a magazine, but it's something that is uh, basically written by Jonathan Wiley, because as they leave after, you know, Connie can't identify anyone, he puts the the magazine down and there's like an ominous kind of like zoom in on the picture of him even though his viewers we've seen who it is so like i don't know why they needed that like ominous little sting but they you know they do that um, um, i thought that that moment was just kind of like a, oh if only she had noticed that picture but she didn't right that's what i took for it too like oh yeah we know who it is and she would know who it is if she saw the picture but they missed it by that much so that's going to be a, hidden for a, a, just a little bit longer before they link uh, who the actual person is. I, I just thought it was odd because I think in a serious film that would be like, that would be like a, a kind of reveal that would be like, oh, if only she'd looked at this. But but then in in a comedy, it just feels a little out of place to to do this reveal. And it's it's like, well, you know, she didn't look at the magazine. So, uh, you know, I, I, don't, I don't understand. Um, this film is, then, is uh, this film is a weird mix of serious and comedy. <laughs> It is, and I sometimes it doesn't really know where the line is, and it can't really pick. Uh, speaking of which, the next scene where um, Friday comes to, over to Strebeck's, um, and Strebeck has been once again intimate with another member of the LAPD, and they've been playing good cop, bad cop, and he is wearing cuffs, and she like uncuffs him um, as he comes out, <laughs> and um, we see that Emil Muzz has tracked them down. Um, or track down Strebeck, or he was following Friday. I don't know how he's there because, you know. Um, and as they approach their car, uh, it explodes. 
Um, so, <laughs> and and I kind of I kind of like that. Like th- there is this ru- just this running gag of just them having cars either getting stolen or exploding or later on turned over. Like just that they have like a lot of kind of like bad luck when it comes to cars throughout this film. Um, and so as just because I mean it, again just a really odd touch. Strebeck says let's go get coffee. Um, and he he says I know where the the place that serves the best coffee in town, and then they are in a strip club, and um, uh, I I mean I I didn't remember them going to a strip club like it's been a, like a couple of decades probably since I've seen this film, um, and I probably re- I like saw a TV version which probably like Lan was missing this scene, and so when they were suddenly in a strip club I was like wait what on earth is like why is this the choice of like this is like I guess it's meant to show that like Strebeck is like a bit sleazy or something, uh, but it's just such an odd kind of choice uh, for this film to kind of make. You know, if you're a, if you're a fan of the original Dragnet and you're watching this film, you're probably sitting here halfway through this film going, "What is happening to Dragnet?" This this scene really felt like somebody a couple of years before had watched Beverly Hills Cop and they're like, you know what? We need to get this straight-laced Joe Friday into a strip club like they did in that movie and have that juxtaposition. Like, it even had a Patti LaBelle song playing and she has a big song in Beverly Hills Cop. I was like, hmm, I don't know. Maybe I'm just reading too much into it. <laughs> no, I definitely got that Beverly Hills Cop vibe from it. I, uh, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, like I said, I didn't have, definitely didn't remember it. It feels like it's like... Like, did someone just go around in the 80s and be like, your comedy doesn't have, like, the requisite amount of boobs in it that, like, it, that is required by the MPAA or something like that? And it's like, you gotta meet the quotient. <laughs> Take him into a strip club. Yeah, and I, I mean, what is funny is just the fact that Joe Friday is just sitting there drinking a cup of coffee and when the stripper kind of, like, comes near him, he just goes, ma'am. Um, like when, she, <laughs> when, when she's, when she's like, just like kind of leaning over and dancing next to him. Um, and obviously, um, Strebeck knows the names of all the strippers as well. Um, uh, but yeah, I don't, I mean, it's, it's such an, it's such a kind of odd scene. Um, and I should say at this point, the fact that he says ma'am should bring up the fact that throughout this film, he will say, I think on three different occasions, just the facts, um, to people. Um, but that was never in the original TV series. Um, there was like a comedian that used to do jokes about Dragnet and he would do the joke, just the facts, ma'am. Like that would be like a thing that where he would like do an impression of Dragnet. I can't remember the name of the comedian now. And that was like his thing. And huh. that's where it kind of ended up in kind of popular culture is that everyone thought that that's what like Harry Morgan would say on the um, in the show or whatever. But he never did. So, <laughs> so it was just an odd... <laughs> Uh, kind of thing that uh, kind of almost like that whole beam me up Scotty thing. Interesting. At least uh, Joe Friday does admit that they have the best coffee in LA. Yeah. So Strebeck was correct. So they are getting closer as partners. So that, that, you know, it's a nice bonding moment for them. It was, it was kind of just one of those things where he was quoted so often as saying it as if it was in Dragnet, that people thought it was in Dragnet. And then in the film, they put it in there. <laughs> so it comes full circle. Uh, yeah, we we then have because they've got a lead on where the chemicals might be, and so Friday for some reason is on the streets by himself. I say the streets; it's obviously a backlot. It's such a it's the most backlotty thing in the entire film um, because obviously we're about to start smashing it to pieces, so it's kind of obvious it's a backlot. Um, and he's just whistling in the one part. Of t- he literally is just whistling. He's just standing on the street whistling and smoking, and then these ruffians come up to him. 
And uh, <laughs> when they ask for a smoke, he says, it's a bad habit. Don't take it up, you know, like and starts kind of lecturing them a little bit. And then they just get into a fight with him. And there's three of them. There's one of him. And I feel like this is put in to kind of boost Dan Aykroyd's ego and the fact that if he wanted, he could beat up three guys, um, <laughs> including the final one who has a set of nunchucks and is like very skilled with them. Like the, the stunt guy who's doing the stuff is very good. Um, but he gets taken out by Joe Friday. And it's just such a... It's such a kind of odd thing because because it just feels like it's in there to make Joe Friday look Serves like Serves no purpose otherwise, yeah. yeah. And funnily enough, the British censors felt that, yes, it served no purpose, and they actually cut out the whole nunchuck fight. Oh, because wow. nunchucks are forbidden to be in uh, British movies back then? Was that right? Yeah, that's correct, yeah. The censors did it. There was a whole thing about nunchucks where you cu- you couldn't buy them in this country. And, uh, you know, they were not allowed to be shown on screen. So there were a few films in the 80s that had, like, nunchuck scenes cut out. Um, for the for the DVD or whatever released later on, um, the film was resubmitted and the nunchuck stuff was put back in. <laughs> so, finally, children of the 80s could see nunchucks uh, once again in the 2000s. Uh, but, yeah, I, I just, I find... And then we get this whole scene with the wholesome cow. Uh, there's, like, a, a milk place and the police tank... Uh, once again, a cab drives up to the door, and this guy keeps like looking through the window, and then it cuts to the tank, and then he looks through the window again, and then it cuts to the <laughs> tank, and then eventually he alerts everybody to hit the decks, and this tank just drives through this clearly balsa wood door uh, that kind of shatters, and then they kind of smash into the kind of machinery that's in there, and basically spray milk everywhere, um, and I do I do like how Tom Hanks does this bit where he gets out of the tank. And they're both wearing like yellow hazmat suits uh, because obviously he thought this was going to be where the chemicals were. And they take off like their masks and Dan Aykroyd is getting like soaked in whatever this kind of this kind of colored water because obviously they're not spraying milk everywhere. And he keeps, you know, he in, in all fairness to Dan Aykroyd, he keeps the performance going through all this milk being poured over him. And then I like how... Um, Tom Hanks is like just putting his tongue out and kind of like trying to figure out what this is. And he's like, I can't place it. And basically Dan Aykroyd is like, it's milk. And it's just like, yeah, I like he, how like, to- he, he makes fun of him for like not knowing what it is because he's unhealthy or something like that. But I thought back to the scene with the chili dogs where like his characters eating a fruit salad and giving Friday the lecture. Thank you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that yeah. bothered yeah, me did- too. <laughs> Yeah, because he goes, I bet you like this stuff. And then, of course, Dan Aykroyd is like, you know, vitamin D, calcium for strong bones. And it's, it's like, yeah, this it feels a bit kind of like odd that they're... But yeah, you know, and on in voiceover, like apparently the people who were at this wholesome cow factory, which is a milk factory, which I don't... Under, my personally, that doesn't make... Like in the middle of like... In the middle city, of Los Angeles? like yeah, yeah, a milk factory doesn't make any sense. Like that milk would be sour by the time it got there. Um, <laughs> you know, you milk cows on a farm. You don't... I don't know what they're doing with that milk in the middle of the city. Um, so, yeah, they apologize and the guys throw, like, the plastic cow that was on top of their, their sign at them. Um, we, should and then we, the, pa- we should mention that the battering ram on the tank has a little LAPD logo and says, like, have a nice day on it, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which is a setup uh, for the, what, when, when they bring that, that tank back later on. Um, but, yeah, like... So they apologize to these guys for destroying their milk factory or whatever. Um, and then <laughs> it pans over and we see this, like, um, this, this uh, what is it? It's like a catering company. 
Um, and Emil Muzz is there, and that's obviously where the chemicals were. They were like next door. So obviously, whatever the tip they got, they 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 got it off by one. Um, and then comes a dig at Yugoslavia, uh, as they are the only car that they're never allowed because they keep destroying cars and losing cars. Uh, is a Yugo, uh, which in voiceover Dan Aykroyd says is the cutting edge of Serbo-Croatian technology. Uh, which, you know, feels like an unfair attack on the Yugoslavian car industry. I mean, you know, they were trying. Come on. You, um, Yugos were probably new in the 80s, right? So it was like... Yeah. They were like a constant butt of jokes back then. Right. Uh, yeah. I, we, you know, we had Yugos over here and we'd also joke about them. Uh, we would joke like about a, Yugos, but we'd like also joke about Larders, which was... Um, yeah. And uh, and what's and Skoda's, but now obviously Skoda is like a extremely prestigious car company. So um, I remember uh, it works. I remember Hyundai was a, a butt of jokes when that first came out too. It was like, oh, the yeah. Koreans are trying to have cars, and it's like they're very good cars. But yeah, and Yugos weren't bad. You know, they they were made. You know, they were kind of basic, but they lasted. You know, they were fairly, you know, they were fairly robust cars. Um, and yeah, so on. <laughs> I don't even understand. Like this is another weird thing that like. Um, uh, because obviously there's been some tension between Friday and Strebeck. Strebeck decides to watch the TV literally on his watch, a tiny little TV on his <laughs> on a watch, and it's like now I remember there being like watch TVs, but they usually had gigantic aerials because obviously they couldn't pick anything up. So the fact that he's just holding his watch there and we get like a zoom in on that, um, and there's no aerial pointing out of it, it's like well it, that wouldn't work. There'd be no picture. It'd just be. You know, just be, uh, you know, just like white snow on there. There'd be nothing on there. Um, but for some reason, he's watching like a press conference where Jane Kirkpatrick is attacking the mayor. And again, like it's it, it's just this weird thing that Jane Kirkpatrick keeps appearing on TVs throughout this film and not like in person. But yeah, so we, and we kind of cut to the it, from him watching it to the actual um, event that's going on. And obviously she's kind of saying to the mayor that he should just resign, which I mean, what I find odd about this is, um, you know, okay, a mayor is bad. They're not doing very well for the city or whatever. Um, but, you know, they were elected for a term. So uh, if you're not happy with them, you run against them when their term finishes. You don't ask for them to resign. Like, that's just not a, that's not a thing that happens that often in politics. Obviously, I think in America they have, like, recall elections and stuff like that. Uh, but again, if you're not happy with him, then mount a recall. Don't just have lots of press conferences where you keep saying to the mayor, "You're doing poorly. Resign." <laughs> like, I feel like that. Yeah, uh, I feel like that does happen nowadays. But it's like you know, anyone can you can say whatever you want to you know tell them to yeah resign, but it doesn't mean it's going to happen. So explain to me why she wanted him to resign. Was it due to the pagan problem or no? Well, yeah, she's obviously talking up the fact that the pagans are taking over the city or whatever, and she's using that as pretext for him not having control over crime and she's obviously the the police commissioner so she's obviously pitching that she can get crime under control and control the pagans if she were elected mayor so that makes it doubly um, weird to me that that um friday and strebeck um you know called them out to that where they had that big pagan gathering and she doesn't believe it it's like well i mean oh, clearly the pagans are a menace and that's your big problem but now you're like no they were never here no big deal <laughs> yeah. With the reveal we find out about this character later, I feel like a lot of this kind of tracks a bit more for me because it obviously, given that we find out that she is involved with the uh, 
the pagan conspiracy when Christopher Plummer, like this is all an act on her part, much like it's an act on his part to sort of drum up what, like her being on TV all these times, it's clearly showing that she's like someone trying to climb the career ladder to become empower herself. And I think uh, she, she probably knows that the pagans were having that meeting that Aykroyd and Hank Staker too, but she's obviously going to make them feel like fools because she doesn't want to actually be stopped in that case, I would say. Good so. point. Good point. It is an extremely complicated plan that has many moving parts that seems like kind of overthought a little bit um, in terms of like, you know, how it's being executed and obviously it's leading to confusion. So um, we get a nice little detour here where um, Strebeck follows Friday to what turns out to be his grandmother's house. Um, which I think is the house that will eventually turn up in the Burbs in a couple of movies' time, because it is on the Universal backlot. Mm. Uh, it's like the main house where Tom Hanks himself will live, um, and the next-door neighbours will be spooky people who might be, I don't know, um, Satanists? I can't remember. <laughs> you know, so... <laughs> Um, you know, so when they get there, uh, we find out, obviously, Strebeck, it's his grandmother's um, birthday, and he's going to take her out to the Brown Derby. Um, and he has invited the Virgin Connie Swell to accompany them. <laughs> and uh, I think it's funny here how Strebeck, like, once he finds out that Connie's coming along with them, he's, he's like, oh, well, now I have a date. <laughs> and he kind of invites himself along to the meal. And, you know, kind of ingratiates himself to the grandmother, who, in all fairness, seem, you know, she seems to like uh, Pep and, and what he's doing. So um, there is an implication, you know, after the meal that um, maybe uh, something happens between the grandmother and, and Pep. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, this is like this kind of detour into this meal uh, leads them into a space where the commissioner... Uh, the Reverend and the Captain are all having lunch a couple of tables over. And this is obviously uh, where Connie sees uh, Whirly and tells Friday. Uh, and Pep is like, you, you know, that's you can't just go and arrest him because of that. And obviously Friday is like, yes, I can. <laughs> and so when, when the Reverend goes to the toilet, I think this is, again, this is like a, a kind of an amusingly staged scene in that um, Christopher Plummer is basically sitting down on the toilet with his pants around his ankles whilst outside the, the um, you know, outside of the toilet, um, Friday is giving this speech about how he's a public servant. And, and, and the weirdest thing is everybody like in the in the men's room, when he finishes his speech, they all start applauding for him. <laughs> and it's just such a, I don't know, it's just, it's one of those weird things where I think like in a better movie, it would be like, it would be a more memorable kind of scene where he's just giving this weird speech, like in a men's room to this guy who's sitting on the toilet. Um, and then when he comes out, he like immediately arrests him. And then he also tips the, uh, the guy who's, uh, you know, um, who's in the, there, like the, the attendant, the attendant. Yeah. He like, he, he, and I just thought that was a nice touch that he just put some change in the little thing as he's leaving. Yeah, I remember like this is one that this is a scene that definitely uh, stood out to me as a kid. I definitely had clear memories of him arresting Plummer and everyone applauding. But I couldn't really remember why they applauded him specifically. So watching it here, I still didn't quite understand like why they like the rallying uh, that he had from the public here. I guess I assumed it was because he was kind of speaking about certain platitudes of like oh you got to respect this city and stand by it in some way that maybe people just thought like yeah pride pride in the uh in this community that we're all in but it, it was something that I, I didn't quite translate to me as i maybe did when i was a child watching this for the first time 
I think everyone applauds because if you look at the screenwriting credits, one of them says Dan Aykroyd. <laughs> and, uh, and so I think he just wanted to give himself a speech where everybody applauded him. And then everyone clapped. <laughs> yeah, he, get, he, gets it to de- he gets to deliver this monologue in like one take. Um, and so, you know, all the extras kind of applaud at the end. I, I, it just, it, again, yeah, it's a really weird thing. But obviously this arrest, um, you know, uh, when he comes out and he's handcuffed to the uh, to the, the reverend, obviously the captain and the commissioner are both outraged and they demand that he lets him go. And also uh, he is relieved of duty. And so for the, the final third of the film, he won't have his badge. Um, and, you know, after this, uh this is where pep drives off with the grandmother um we are to assume that maybe something happened between them and friday and connie decide to go up to the hollywood hills they're next to the hollywood sign um which in this film doesn't have like a fence around it i think now it's like a fenced area you can't really get up to there Um, and they're kind of looking over the city and connie is talking about how she used to wish upon a different star each night and as they go to kiss uh they are interrupted by Emil Muzz, who lifts up the car and <laughs> flips it over, and the scene just cuts. <laughs> like, yeah. we don't... <laughs> like, like, we don't see how they get out. We don't see if Emil Muzz does anything else to them. We, like, they, it just it just stops at the end of the scene. And it's just such a... I was like, we're there. What's going on? Like, um, yeah, it's just a, re- a really weird ending to that to that particular scene. Um, that was a very strange cut. It was like, yeah, I, I assume they're getting kidnapped, but maybe he's killing them. I, who knows? But, um, actually there's one, one other thing I did want to say, if you'll bear with my math here, uh, I use the ages of Granny Mundy's actress and Dan Aykroyd and, uh, uh, she was 62 when they made this movie and he's 35. So I, I figured out that if she had had his mother at age 15, that was just a, I just came up with that for no reason, um, then his mom would have had to have him at age 12. So. <laughs> I don't know, I just felt like doing that math. I guess they left out. Uh, yes! Yeah, they left out in the script the part where his mom fell into a time warp at some point, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> not just make her his mom instead, but I don't know. I guess maybe grandma, like that he's good to his grandma, makes him even seem even more wholesome than he already tries to come off as. Mm. Yeah, uh, and and the the actress is uh, Lenka Peterson. She was born in 1925. She's 95. She's still alive. Wow. Um, wow. <laughs> you know, she was married to her husband, uh, Patrick O'Connor. Sorry, Daniel O'Connor. Uh, from 1948 to 2015. Wow. Um, so, and they have a kid, Glynis O'Connor, um, and also a Darren O'Connor, so some good naming going on in this family. <laughs> so we so we could still get her for the, the sequel to Dragnet. You could, yeah, yeah. Um, her, her son, Glynis O'Connor, is... Uh, no, sorry, daughter, Glynis O'Connor. I'm misreading everything. Um, she is a, She's an actress. Um, and you know, so she, you know, she's had a minor career, not like any kind of big films or anything, but yeah. So, uh, you know, she's, she's still acting as of this year, uh, her daughter is, Ooh. um, yeah, it's weird. Cause Lenka Peterson is her stage name. Her birth name was Betty Ann Isaacson. I, wow. Um, yeah. I, it's <laughs> weird. I, I, I mean, it's a choice Usually we're to, in the to reverse in. there. Yeah. Yeah. It's unusual to, uh, quote-unquote, go ethnic on your alias or in Hollywood. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I guess around the time when she started acting, 
I guess Isaacson maybe would have been. I don't know. It's just a, it's a weird choice to go from being a Betty Ann to being a Lenka. Hmm. So, <laughs> so, uh, but yeah. Uh, then we do this weird thing where we switch, and now Pep is doing the voiceover. Um, and his voiceover <laughs> begins with him saying, "I'm Pep Strebeck, uh, and I accidentally overslept." <laughs> and it's like it's kind of the opposite of like how Joe Friday introduces stuff because he doesn't bother with like all the phones and everything. Once again, there's another member of the LAPD who is on top of him. On next to his bedside, he has a box of condoms, which unfortunately is out of you know he's he's gotten there's no one not in there, so he's out of condoms, and so he picks up his hamburger phone, which uh, you know such a kind of classic eighties uh, thing, and he's worried because um, Friday has gone missing, and his logic for like why you know he isn't with Connie or whatever, is that because apparently. He is too cheap to pay for a motel so that they they could have sex somewhere. And then he says, sex in a Yugo is logistically impossible. Uh, which, again, taking another shot at the Yugoslavian car industry for some reason. Um, and this is where we get to see the second part of the conspiracy, uh, which just makes things even more confusing. And we find out that Jerry Caesar uh, is in on it and he meets with uh, Wiley in a graveyard, I think it is. Um, and they kind of talk about the plan. And obviously, once the commissioner is in as mayor, they will control, uh, you know, two halves. One will be controlling all the porn and outraging everybody. And then the other guy will be being outraged and making money off the outrage. And that is their plan, apparently. Um, and of course, once Jerry leaves, uh, the commissioner who has been hiding kind of comes out to say that she doesn't trust him. Um, but also, uh, Wiley says, well, you know, it's funny because he thinks after tomorrow he's still going to be alive. Uh, so another layer is added to the plan. I'm guessing at this point, you know, you can figure out that that's what the chemicals are going to be used for, um, is for killing uh, Jerry Caesar. And uh, looking at the photograph that had the phone number for the mansion on it, um, Pep figures out that somebody was at Muscle Beach. And so he goes there and just points in, just out in the open, just points the gun straight at Emil Muzz's face while he's lifting up some weights. And once again, we just cut. We we don't see what happens. They just cut. And I I don't know if there was something like if there was some something that was cut out of this film that would would have kind of explained all this, but I guess they're just leaving us in suspense um, as to what's going to happen in the next scene. But what, um, well, what but, a facial expression we get from Muzz, though, holding up his weights. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a, that is a, I mean, it's a great shot to kind of finish up, but it's just such a weird... These, these scenes that just finish... Uh, I guess they kind of tie it together because from Emil Muzz, we find out that, um, that both Friday and the Virgin Connie Swale have been kept at the Griffiths Observatory. Um and they actually, you know, obviously filmed outside the Griffiths Observatory, which has been in many films, um, going all the way back to Rebel Without a Cause. I think he's like one of the first ones that shot there. Um, and what's what's puzzling about this is why didn't they kill Joe Friday? Like the Reverend turns up. I mean, it's been almost 24 hours because it's gone dark again because it's the night of the party. Um, the Reverend turns up to collect Connie Swale. Why didn't they kill Joe Friday in the last 24 hours? After turning over his Yugo... <laughs> and trying to bomb him. Yeah, and, like they, they car-bombed him, and then they turned over his Yugo. They obviously then took both Connie and 
Joe out of the car, tied them up, took them to the observatory, put them in chairs inside the observatory tied up. And then the Reverend shows up and says, I'm taking, you know, the Virgin Connie Swell. And then they like nobody just kills Joe Friday. Like They've kept him alive for 24 hours. Does not make any sense. Um, yeah, it's it's a dumb plan. Uh, like, and the fact that Emil Muz gives him up so quickly, but then Emil Muz also shows up at the party. Why didn't Pep Strebeck arrest him if he's, if he's admitted to kidnapping Joe Friday and Connie Swell? Like, why is he out? Like, we've already seen that Pep is willing to kind of break the rules to interrogate him. So, I... Uh, the whole thing is extremely puzzling, but, quite, you know, we're getting towards the climax here. So, quite frankly, uh, it's nice that they just keep things moving along. Um, but, yeah, I do like that they actually, ha- you know, went to the Griffiths Observatory to kind of shoot stuff. I thought that was a nice detail that they actually kind of did it, um, you know, on location. It's, you know, it's a nice bit of kind of like uh, like L.A. detail that they put in there. Um, but, yeah, so obviously Connie Swell kidnapped by the Rev, taken God knows where. Uh, we'll find out later on. Pep turns up and he fights by rotating a telescope and knocking it into someone's face. And it's not a big telescope. It's just a small telescope that he just... I don't know. It's, in, in the Griffiths Observatory, I'm sure that they've got a gigantic telescope that looks at the sky. You wouldn't have these little tiny ones. But still, there's one on a stand. And, you know, between him and Friday, they kind of fight their way out. Um, and, you know, they obviously know that they've got to go to the bait party because that, you know, that's where the plan is going to take place. Um, and obviously at this point, this is where Pep, you know, brings it home to Joe Friday that, you know, he can't go to the bait party and, you know, arrest anyone because he's no longer a police officer. Um, and, you know, obviously Joe is very sad at that, uh, which, you know, doesn't explain what happens in a couple of scenes time. Um, but yeah, we cut to the bait party and we find out that, that Wiley is there. Um, like th- th- him, him just being at this party, like as a reverend is like the most suspicious thing in the entire world. Like if I was there, if I was any of those bait mates and I was walking around in in a bikini, I'd be like, why is that priest here? Like, <laughs> along with the mayor, like it, the whole thing just instantly gives the plan away. It's just extremely suspicious, particularly as when the place is burnt down, the one person who won't be there is going to be the reverend. Um, so he's there to collect a, um, you know, he's there to collect a check for, uh, is it a million dollars? Is that the donation that he's taking from? Yeah. Uh, yeah. From, from, uh, from Caesar. Um, why the mayor is there, I don't know. I mean, I know he's the mayor of L.A., but... Yeah, why would, you know, why would the mayor and and the priest want to be associated with a, you know, smart peddler or whatever? Yeah. I mean, I know Hugh Hefner in real life had, like, a bit of kind of pull within, you know, the kind of political community of Los Angeles and stuff and had fundraisers and stuff like that. But they're painting Jerry Caesar as being someone who, you know, his, like, his 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 um, publications aren't on that level. They're like, you know, they're more smutty. So it, it's, it seems odd that like the mayor of LA and, and this reverend are turning up to this party. Um, but what I do like at this party is the extremely pained national anthem um, where, <laughs> where one of the, the bait mates, like she kind of warms up. She's doing like a lot of me, 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 trying to warm up to start the national anthem. And I just like the kind of detail that, you know, 
obviously people have like probably in her life said that she's a very talented singer or something and she you know she can kind of carry a tune but it's just like it's just funny that she spends so long kind of warming up um you know on the mic like she doesn't warm up off mic she literally into the mic is just saying it kind of really loudly me 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 and i like how um, um how proud dabdy coleman seems to be because he's like talking to the christopher Plummer, and he's like ah, i bet you didn't think she could sing that well <laughs> yeah uh yeah I, this whole party is kind of odd like for something that's a 25th anniversary of like you know the first publication of bait or whatever it feels a little low-key like it feels like there should be not just bait mates walking around with little badges that say what year they're from um but you know it feels like there should be some celebrities there or something but there's you know it's just literally a priest and a mayor and, <laughs> and and all these women in bikinis that's that's the you know that's the party you know, considering um, it's an '80s film, like an '80s comedy, I'm surprised they didn't shoehorn in like a, a a band of the time doing a live performance in there. Yeah, <laughs> it it would make sense. Yeah, it would make sense to actually have some celebrities in the form of some musicians, because you know, as we know, a lot of musicians were always at the Playboy Mansion, so it would just make sense. Um, you know, a lot of playmates married musicians. Like that's like kind of one of the main kind of things that happened. Um, you know, as uh, Steven Tyler and Tommy Lee can attest to. Um, so, yeah, we, like Caesar gets the check from, uh, gives the check to Wiley, should I say. Um, and as the national anthem starts, uh, the setup for the gas to kill everybody, to poison all these playmates is, is being set up. And uh, all the kind of heavies outside are doing all that. Um, and they're also setting up, uh, they're pouring out boxes of the latest edition of Bait. And this is where kind of Strebeck sees this. Uh, obviously, he's had to leave Friday outside. And he calls the captain and he says, they've got to send SWAT. Um, you know, it's, you know, it's it, like Wiley is going to set fire to the, the mansion. They're going to gas everybody. Um, and at this point, Wiley kind of makes out uh, and he tells Emil that he's going to his private jet. Uh, he says this quite loudly so that um, Pep Strebeck can overhear it. Um, and Strebeck goes to like the, the 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 truck that is controlling all the, um, you know, the setting up of the gas. Um, and he does this weird bit where he kind of just jumps into the truck and he picks up the phone and he goes, oh, the white pages. He goes, have you ever really, this is to the guy, he goes, have you ever really just reached out and touched someone? And then he smacks him in the face with the white pages. And I was like, I mean, you know, obviously, I'm guessing that's the tagline of the white pages, but it's a really long way to do that kind of joke. Yeah. Um, I mean, uh, yeah, Tom Hanks pulls it off because he is, you know, such a charming actor. But it's again, it's a long way for a, a small joke. Um, and then we see all the police cars coming past. And then rather sadly, Joe Friday, somebody says, you know, move out of the way for the police. And he sit, he kind of moves out of the way on the side of the road. And he just sits there very sad because um, he's not police anymore. Um and th at this point, as the police arrive, obviously Muz wasn't expecting this, um, all the guys who were like dressed as like waiters and stuff, they just get into a firefight with the police. They just start firing guns on the police and just get into a big... And it's like, I mean, obviously, you know, if I'm a goon working for someone, um, I've obviously made a certain life choice to do that. But just to start shooting guns at the police, it feels like the film's kind of taken a bit of a step in a certain direction to kind of go to this where there's just for like five or six minutes on screen, there's just a firefight between police officers and, you know, these these hired um, heavies. Um, and uh, this is where Strebeck kind of reveals himself, 
because he's getting shot at as well by the police because he's he he you know put on like a tuxedo to hide with all these uh, these guys um and eventually he kind of you know um we see the tank this is where the callback comes with the have a nice day uh the tank busts down the gate goes through the fire and arrives at where the firefight is kind of taking place and friday is revealed as the one driving the police tank even though he is not a police officer again yet um and as an audience member you might be thinking to yourself oh have they restored him to being a police officer so that he can drive the tank in and make a big you know return no apparently he's just stolen the police tank (laughs) and just drove it into this mansion um so i'm not sure about the legality of that uh but as he gets out um you know friday uh, the Pep is in a fight with Muzz and Muzz has got his gun pointed at um, Pep as he's on the floor and he's about to kill him he's about to shoot him in the head and then uh, Friday shows up and points his shotgun right into Muzz's face um, which uh, Muzz fortunately doesn't try pulling the trigger and killing um, Pep fortunately for us um, but then uh, is this where um, Pep does his um, reading the rights rap I believe yes. he does. Yes. yes yeah. Uh, which I yeah. I was kind of concerned, like when it it sounded like he was saying, "Oh, you already know this," and I thought he was going to stop saying it, and I was like, "Oh no!" But then he was like, "Oh, how about we sing along instead?" And then goes on a bit more of a <laughs> musical route there. It's like, oh, that's kind of interesting. Is this also the part where he says, "Thank God it's Friday" as well, or does that come elsewhere? He does, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's somewhere in that sequence. When when he when he when he when he when he comes out of the the, the tank and he opens up the thing, he, he Tom Hanks delivers. Thank God it's Friday, um, which nobody else hears. I don't know who he's saying it for, <laughs> and he's too far away from from Friday in the middle of a firefight for him to hear it. So I don't know. He's just kind of saying it to nobody. Um, but yeah, and so obviously the goons have been kind of subdued by the police and Caesar comes out with uh, two ladies by his side and he's very grateful to uh, Joe Friday for saving his life and he promises him a subscription to all their magazines, including Bait and one which is titled Field and Cream, which is such a... I don't know. I mean, you know, it's a, it's a funny title for a, for a skin magazine. Um uh, obviously, Joe Friday, uh, he he just asks that Caesar stops touching him because he's obviously and kind of steps back and he's like, OK, OK, like, you know, Darren. Um, um, and then do, do they have Field and Stream magazine in the UK? Because that's what they. I think they do. Yeah. Oh, OK, because yeah. that's what it was. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, uh, yeah I, I think it's it's carried over here. It's I think it, it might just be imported. I don't think there's like a UK version of it. Mm. Um, but yeah, I do like the kind of the. The play, the yeah, like the kind of titles are just a bit of a gag on like existing magazines. Um, but I, I also like that Caesar is willing to offer lifetime subscriptions <laughs> just at the drop of a hat um, to, to to somebody who earlier talked about him being slime. So like, why would you think that Joe Friday would ever want a subscription to any of your magazines? Like, it doesn't make any sense. Um, but yeah, and then we get obviously this is where the uh, the captain turns up, you know, obviously congratulating them, um, and I like that he does the kind of um, I'm going to call it the I don't like cricket um, move, where you know in the song they say I don't like cricket, I love it, and so here he says to he says to uh, to Pep he says I'm afraid I can't let you take a civilian on a hot pursuit, and then he gives him his badge back. So you know, like he wasn't saying Friday couldn't go along, he was saying he needs his badge back. Uh, and I thought that was a nice little moment, the way that Harry Morgan played it. You know, it's like 
Um, but at the same time, um, Connie has just been kidnapped and is about to be put on a private jet. And I think these guys should be hurrying up and not standing around for two or three minutes, congratulating each other and <laughs> giving each other their badge back. And like, you know, it's, it feels like things slow down for a little moment. And you're like, guys, somebody has been kidnapped. <laughs> like, Go and rescue the Virgin Connie's well. Um, and then this is obviously where we see the change in Friday, you know, having been, you know, thrown off the force and then put back on the force. Um, he decides he's going to drive. Um, and obviously this leads us to think he's going to drive slowly. But now that the love of his life is being kidnapped, he drives insane. And every time the pet points out that he's gone through like traffic lights and all this kind of stuff, uh, Dan Aykroyd kind of deadpans these uh, kind of things where he's kind of talking about how, how he loves living on the edge now and how reckless he is and everything, um, which I just thought was a nice kind of kind of change in the character arc. Yes, Keith. Darren, I apologize if this is a slight backtrack, but earlier, like right after uh, they've saved Demi Coleman's life and he offers that subscription, like... This is the last moment in the film, right? Is like when he is with his other bait mates and they just basically decide, oh, let's get out of here. Let's uh, go get something to eat or something along those lines, I think. <laughs> yeah, he I'm says, hungry. are you hungry? Yeah. And they're, they're like, yeah. I thought that was such a funny way for him to exit the movie, like how he doesn't really have any sort of comeuppance, <laughs> like how he basically gets his life saved after getting double-crossed and seems to be like be on better terms with Dan Aykroyd, even if Dan Aykroyd doesn't like him much, where he actually seems to respond well to him being told to get lost and then he's just out of the movie from there which i thought was an interesting <laughs> note and daddy coleman i thought played it very well for a closing line yeah at the end we'll find out what happens to whirly and they did i was expecting that they would say something happened to jerry caesar but they say nothing and they don't say anything about the commissioner either no like that's right i didn't think about that but you're right <laughs> yeah <laughs> Um, so at the end here, we kind of get into a certain level of ridiculousness as uh, the private plane takes off. Um, you know, the commissioner is like, everything's been found out. It's time to give ourselves up. You know, there's no point running. Um, and, you know, uh, Christopher Plummer lies and he says, I'm going to go and untie the Virgin Connie Swell. He gets onto the plane and he gets into the, the pilot seat and he just takes off. Um he doesn't, you know, and as he takes off uh, on the ground, uh, Friday and Strebeck have arrived and they're kind of sad because they've effectively lost him. And then we cut to in the sky and we see that the Reverend is flying his plane and then pulling up right next to him. And I don't know if, like, I feel like this is something that Tom Mankiewicz or Alan Zweibel probably were trying to do as satire. But, you know, with the tank, I think, you know, that they were trying to do that as well. Like the idea that the LAPD would have a tank seems ridiculous. In 2021, it does not seem ridiculous. <laughs> but in 1987, I think they were playing that as like an over the top kind of ridiculous gag that they had a tank. Because here they show up in a like fighter jet, which has LAPD on the side of it. And they're basically flying next to um, the Reverend. And they kind of indicate to him that he's got to kind of land the plane. Uh, and he does land the plane. I don't know why he just doesn't keep flying. I guess maybe because their jet has got missiles on it or something, and he doesn't want to be shot out of the sky. Yeah, but, but then Connie Swell is in there. So yeah, he's got Connie Swell. He should have been like, they're never going to shoot me down as long as I have Friday's quote-unquote girlfriend yeah. with me. <laughs> but Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of, I don't know why he just doesn't go loco down in Acapulco, which is his plan. Um, you know, there's no extra... Sorry, and Connie looks like very like happy... Uh, at that moment too like oh i'm saved thank goodness and i was thinking in my head <laughs> like well i mean something could still happen here like uh either he could like i don't know he i wouldn't 
imagine he would do this, but he could like crash the plane or he could like do a I'm taking you with me before I land the plane sort of situation. Uh, luckily, it does not happen yeah. that way, as it turns out. He could have put it on autopilot. He could have grabbed the parachute and grabbed Connie and jumped out of the plane. And then what are they going to do? Turn their jet around? Um, <laughs> <laughs> come and catch them in midair? Uh, yeah, so he just lands the plane because, you know, if if the LAPD jet turns up next to your plane, just land your plane. Um, and we find out... On February 21st, a trial was held in Superior Court in and for the county of Los Angeles. The Reverend Jonathan Worley was found guilty on two counts of attempted murder, kidnapping, arson, obstruction of justice, and tampering with public utilities. He is presently in the men's correction facility at Chino, serving 43 consecutive 99-year sentences. Yeah, and then the punchline is... Which makes him eligible for parole in seven years. Um, and they do it in the classic Dragnet style where he's like standing against the black ba- blank background and all. Yeah. Standing alone in front of the camera while they read off what happened to him. Yeah, which, you know, that's how they would end episodes, wouldn't they? And again, there's no mention here of what happened to the commissioner. There's no mention of Jerry C's of two people who were co-conspirators <laughs> who should have been charged with something. Um, there's no mention of Emil Muzz. You know, like... I'm I'm guessing maybe he was killed or something. I don't know. Like we 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 only have this one person who is uh, given like the the guilty verdict, um, and you know we then cut to uh, Pep uh, arriving on the back of a bike, um, and he says to the this officer um, who takes off her helmet and shakes out her hair for some reason. I guess so that we can see that she's a woman because obviously we don't want to think that Pep had hooked up with somebody else. Uh, because she literally puts her helmet straight back on and drives off. So <laughs> taking the helmet off was in, was just, you know, it, it feels like a, an entirely pointless move. Um, and of course she says, well, I see you later. And Pep says, of course you will. I'm wearing your underwear. Um, which I thought was, you know, that's a nice delivery by Tom. He does it so naturally as if it's not really a thing. Um, and, you know, we find, you know, like uh, this is where uh, we get the punchline to the entire film. Well, late night last night, partner. I thought the Christian Science Reading Room closed at 10. Not that it's any of your business, Mr. National Enquirer, but I had the pleasure of spending a quiet evening in the company of Connie Swale. We stop for a moment and Pep goes, wait a minute, Connie Swale? Don't you mean the virgin Connie Swale? Android looks at the camera and we get the dragnet sting. is where the film finishes um uh, punchline connie swell is no longer a virgin oh. because she had sex with joe friday oh. hilarious Woo. We made a choice, we made a choice. <laughs> i will say this that uh, yeah the eyebrow raise that Dan Aykroyd does perfectly in sync with the Dragnet theme song, I actually think is very, very well executed. But uh, otherwise, that yeah, that is a very, very labor joke uh, for the, to end the motion picture on. Yeah, they spent like literally like an hour and 20 minutes setting up that punchline. Um, and then, <laughs> and then. And that's not even the, the worst m- part. That's not even the worst and part. And then. and then we finish the film over the the credits with the classic rap song city of crime yes um (laughs) which features a number of samples 
Um, and the music was done by Glenn Hughes, who um, uh, is he he was in, I think, Deep Purple uh, lineups two and three, I think was his um, like who he is. Now, here's the thing about Glenn Hughes. Uh, he was born about uh, 10 miles down the road from where I live. Mm. Uh, he's from Cannock. Um, so, so he's like a local hero, uh, Glenn Hughes is. So the fact that he is the one playing like the bass on City of Crime <laughs> is is kind of insane. Uh, along with Pat Thrall, who's like the guitarist, who's kind of uh, doing stuff. He's been in, he's like a more of a session guy who's been in a lot of stuff. But yeah, Glenn Hughes is on here, and we have samples from out the film. You know, we have the the you know just the facts. Man is sampled, and then. Dan Aykroyd kind of does like the we have samples of his kind of voiceover and he he does a rap and <laughs> Tom Hanks does a rap and that plays for the entire end credits like it's not like halfway through the end credits we switch to like some Ira Newborn music this is the entire end credits for like four full minutes it's just them rapping every person um, every some other guy gets in there and raps too every person listening to this episode you don't have to watch the movie but please go to youtube and watch the music video for this because you get cho- oh. choreographed dancing with both stars it's <laughs> it's amazing i was going to say for for each of these episodes for the for the intro music and the outro music i use a song from you know the episode uh, from the from the actual film so believe me, City of Crime is going to be the introduction to this episode and it's going to be the oh, outro man. to this episode. So That's probably another reason why that. I like this movie as a kid is I probably saw that music video a hundred times. <laughs> uh, I think somebody uh, told me that Paula Abdul choreographed the dancing on it. I wanna, <laughs> oh my God. I, I want to believe. <laughs> yeah, I, w- I mean, I wouldn't be surprised because she was choreographing a lot of stuff. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's funny because... Um, Without knowing this, when I when I heard the opening theme and obviously when I heard uh, City of Crime, um, I was thinking to myself, this sounds like the style of the music sounds a lot like Art of Noise. And it turns out Art of Noise were the people who did this. Oh, <laughs> so, oh. wow. Yeah. Yeah. So they did the no, opening I think theme. A friend, I think a friend who was a fan of them mentioned that to me before I watched this again. He said yeah, I, I like, mean, well, if you want the copy of the song, like, I was like, Whoa. yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, obviously, I hate Art of Noise because they recruited Tom Jones to ruin Kiss. So um, <laughs> they are they are forever on my shit list for doing that. But yeah, no, like the style of music of the opening credits, I was like, this sounds like the Art of Noise. And then it turns out it is the Art of Noise. Um, it's such a weird way to end the film, but at the same time, like it is the it's the most kind of modern way of updating something so that it instantly dates it to 1987. <laughs> is having a rap song on the outro that is rapped by your two main stars, neither of whom are rappers, um, neither of whom are even really singers, I would say. Um, but but yeah, obviously Dan Aykroyd could kind of could not resist. Um, you know, having this as like the outro thing, but yeah, I mean, I mean, Darren, do I even need to bring up Bat Dance? <laughs> <laughs> hey, that is a number one song. That's Bat true. Dance yeah. rules. I love it. Don't get me yeah. wrong. I'm in its corner. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> and the thing is, as well, the sampling in that is all Prince. Yep. Um, you know, it was his choices. Uh, whereas this, uh, this kind of feels rote, just like the whole sampling, just the facts. It's like, you know, come up with something else. Um. <laughs> But yeah, so that is where the film finishes. And so obviously now we need to go to judgments and uh, we rate films on this particular podcast with either T. Hanks 
or no T Hanks. And I was wondering if I was going to go first for this because I got to say, I think I'll probably be on the minority. I'm going to give this a light T Hanks myself. Uh, this was. <laughs> I know we spent a lot of uh, our time, like, rightfully criticizing the plot and certain dated aspects of the movie, but I will admit, watching it, um, the thing about it that really stuck with me was just that interplay with Hanks and Aykroyd. And I do think, for as much as we uh, might joke at Aykroyd's expense for some of the way he ego boosts himself, I think, he, like, this clearly was a passion project for him. I think it does come through in the performance, which I think he is very much dialed in on. And Hanks, I find it to be a very interesting point in his career where this is this, the year just before Big and Punchline, before he's like kind of officially becoming sort of the the one man uh, above the poster guy, like on a pretty permanent basis from this point forward. And seeing him as sort of the um, co-lead here, which I think he steps into very well, was something I had a bit of fun with. The movie itself kind of loses uh, its place a bit as the plot keeps going and it starts to run low on gags that I found too worthwhile, but I did not regret watching it myself. So I'll give it to you, Hanks. Uh, okay. Um, I I have an interesting filmic relationship with Dan Aykroyd. He, he, he's in so many of my favorite movies of all time. I love Blues Brothers. I love Ghostbusters. Uh, but, but he's never my favorite part of any movie he's in. He's always just like, oh, yeah, well, he's affable. There's, there's Dan Aykroyd doing his weird thing. And, and I guess it's kind of the same with this movie where it's like, yeah, he's, he's doing a great Joe Friday. It's clearly something he's passionate about. But for me, it's all about Tom Hanks. He, he brings life to the movie. He's got the star power. And, and much like, you know... It's kind of like a, a prototype for Turner and Hooch because he, he's it's Tom Hanks saddled with kind of a partner that's not necessarily my cup of tea. I, I don't know. I, I, but, but there's so much going on in this movie. It's trying so hard and there's so many bizarre over-the-top choices. I got to go light T. Hanks as well. I mean, it's just too strange not to for me. I, I mean, I think the kind of the main plot is so far removed from like what would be in a, a, a like a normal like episode of the TV series of Dragnet where it's just like general crimes. Whereas this is like a conspiracy between three different people to overthrow the mayor by poisoning him at a party for like a faux Playboy Mansion type thing that's probably going to kill all those playmates as well. And it's like like they're basically going to commit like a mass murder so they can control the porn industry in L.A. And it's like such a convoluted plot. Oh, no, T. Hanks, please. I was talking with a, a friend about this yesterday because I was like, oh, I had to watch Dragnet. I'm so mad about it. I'm like, because I, I, you know, I explained to him, too, that like I really like this movie as a kid for some reason and I watched it a lot but I hadn't seen it in you know 30 years uh and I was like I know why I like it now because it's full of dumb baby jokes for babies <laughs> there's just the gags are so dumb and like I can see why that appealed to 10 year old me but it made you know 40 year old me pretty uh, I just rolled my eyes so much and yeah like I kind of give it props for like having a plot that like they really try to reach for something, but it's almost it's too convoluted for itself. And uh, you know, I think the people in it are fine. I think all the acting is fine and stuff. I don't have any problems with anybody in it. Uh, but yeah, uh, and that last gag just makes me so mad. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I would say the same was true of me. In that when I was a kid, I remember watching this a few times on TV and really liking it. You know, the whole stuff with the 
when they're doing the sacrifice and the goat dance and all that kind of stuff is kind of crazy. Um, but the plot is just so kind of so convoluted and it doesn't make any sense by the end that you're like, I mean, you know, the plan was for the Reverend to escape in his car as everything was being set on fire and everyone's being poisoned. And he was going to take his plane to Acapulco. It's like that wouldn't look suspicious at all. Like he was already fleeing the scene of a crime. And it just it just doesn't make any sense. Like, you know, if he'd have, if he'd have just like gone home, it would have been a better plan because also people know that he's kidnapped Connie Swells, which is like, why did you do that as the Reverend? Like, it, so the whole the whole thing kind of falls apart from a plot point of view. But I would agree with Tim in that, like, uh, the interactions between Hanks and Aykroyd really work. Um and, you know, I would say the same as both Kim, Keith and Tim. Like, I like T. Hanks. Um, like, you know, like, it is such a kind of... It, what's weird is the fact that it's a remake of something from, like, the 50s and 60s where they're trying to maintain that kind of sensibility with one character and then they're trying to update everything else around it. And and that could have had good potential for being, like, a fish-out-of-water type thing. Um, but, but, but Ackroyd just cannot carry it. And I would agree as well. Like, and everything I see Ackroyd in Tim, he's not my favorite person. Like, I pretty much do not like race dancing Ghostbusters at all. Like, everything he does irritates me in that film. <laughs> um, you know, including the ghost blowjob. It's like, <laughs> like literally everything Ackroyd does in Ghostbusters is so annoying. And then even at the end, when he's like, he thinks of the, he's the one who thinks of the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. And it's like, oh, he's a waste of space. I would prefer that Winston Zedmore was the was like there from the beginning instead of him. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and also the fact that in real life Dan Aykroyd is a complete nutcase. Like the whole like if you've ever seen like the whole pitch for the vodka that he does, it is insane. Mm -hmm. Like it just gets crazy. Like with each level, it gets crazier and crazier. And it's like vodka that's like filtered like seven times. And yet to do that, he has to have this whole selling point about like these skulls that were found around the planet and everything. And it just keeps, it just keeps getting crazy. But yeah. And, and you know, like, uh, you know, his cameo in Casper where he like turns up as Ray hands with like a mustache. And I'm like, oh, you couldn't even for one day just shave it to be the character again. Uh, like so lazy. Um, but yeah, and then even like in recent years when he's appeared in like, um, you know, Adam Sandler films and, you know, some people don't like Adam Sandler. I don't mind Adam Sandler. I can I can live with Adam Sandler. But when Dan Aykroyd's in there, he's just the least funniest person on screen and he's so irritating and annoying. And it's like, oh, why is this guy? I don't know. But yeah, I mean, you know, it's weird that he's the one who kind of brought this film and kind of, you know, it, like we say, it was a passion project for him. He had it for years where he kept rewriting the script and kind of trying to get it to, you know, to studios. And it kind of really, you know, he wanted Jim Belushi to be in as Pep Strebeck. Like, that's who he wanted. Wow. Uh, yeah, I know. The shock on your face there, Tim. <laughs> yeah. So he didn't want Tom Hanks. And apparently the studio were like, look, this film's going to make no money unless we put Tom Hanks in. Because Tom Hanks has just had like a few big hits. You know, Splash was gigantic. Like... You know, he, he. We need someone to sell the film, and that person is not going to be you as the character of Joe Friday. Ackroyd so, has you know, the get... worst instincts. Right. What? Yeah. yeah. It is kind of funny to think. Yeah. And Belushi being the Hanksville, another connection with the man with one red shoe, alongside the Dabney Coleman factor, and it's also just funny to think of Hanks and Belushi circling this part, and then going on to do dog comedies to get uh, separately just after this. <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, that, that's the weird connection that like eventually a couple of years after this, they're both basically doing um, Cops with Dogs uh, as films. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, at least, you know, in comparison to Turner and Hooch, at least Hanks, um, you know, in this case, has got somebody who's who isn't slobbering as much. Um, so, but, you know, there would have been nice if they'd made that like a character thing where Joe Friday's constantly slobbering over everybody. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's an okay film, but it's very much like an artifact of 1987. Like, if you wanted to know what 1987 was, um, then this is it. And like I say, there is some elements of satire in there with like the tank and the jet. Uh, but in 2021, a police, you know, force spending money on like their own fighter jet seems a little too real. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, uh, but yeah, and the same. And I'm with you, Lan, like the whole setup of like the Virgin Connie Swales and then the payoff of that is like it's so kind of pained um, that that's like the final gag that they decide to go out on. Um, but yeah, and I agree with Tim. Everybody should watch the video for City of Crime. It is a, a minor yeah, masterpiece. Do, at least do that. Everyone should do that. Yeah. I agree there. Um, and so with that, let's go to plugs. Is there anything that you wish to plug? And let's start with Tim. Uh, don't have much going on, except you can find me on Twitter. My name, Tim Holsizer. Yeah, not too much going on either, but you can follow me on social media, Twitter at at KHAllison94 or on Instagram at KeithAllison1994. And that's pretty much it for me. Uh, yeah, if you like uh, indie rock and alternative music, you can listen to whynotradio.net. Always .net, never .com. <laughs> and it's the letter Y, whynotradio.net. Uh, I'm on Tuesday nights starting at 6 Eastern. Uh, and you can find me on Twitter retweeting things and never usually saying anything on my own at Hellglass. And you can find us uh, at the extremely awkward uh, T underscore FT memory. Um, so thanks to everyone for being my guest here today for this episode. Pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. And next time, I would love to tell you what the episode is about, but unfortunately, it is a really big secret. Mm-hmm. I might want money to take home to my honey!